Uh, remember, your pastor is a former history teacher, and so he loves giving history quizzes. Who can tell me what happened on July 4th, 1776? Declaration of Independence. Who can tell me what happened on April the 15th, 1912? The sinking of the Titanic. December the 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor. November 22nd, 1963. All right, President Kennedy was... That wasn't too hard of a quiz, was it? You know, there is not a day on our calendar that could not tell the story of some historical significance. Uh, There are many what we would call red-letter days on the calendar that are marked for observance and maybe anniversary of certain dates, and uh, they have historical significance. But there is one date that you probably will never see marked on a calendar. And even though it's one of the most significant uh, events that ever occurred, uh, it will not be mentioned on the evening news uh, or mentioned in any newspaper. Most people, if not all, never realize the significance of this particular date. Now, I know that... uh, I may be stretching things just a little bit. I'm not trying to give you something that's not true, but uh, uh, I am trying to uh, show you here that, and I don't know the, if the second month in the book of Genesis may or may not be in February, okay? That may or may not be true. But if it is, then the date I refer to is actually February the 17th. February the 17th, the great significance of the date is not that on this day in the year of 1776, the first volume of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was established. It is not the significant date in 1867 when the first ship passed through the Suez Canal. It is not that in 1876 in Eastport, Maine, the first sardines were canned. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, it is in, uh, in 1889 that Billy Sunday made his first appearance as an evangelist in Chicago on February the 17th. It's not even in uh, 1908, at the age of 79, that the Apache Indian chief Geronimo died. Uh, it's not that in 1934 the first high school auto driving course was offered in State College, State College Pennsylvania, And it was not even February the 17th, 1951, when my lovely wife was born. That's not the date I'm talking about. The great significance of the date of February the 17th is the year 2348 B.C. It began to rain for the first time. Now, if if we can calculate that accurately, which possibly that's very, very possible that we could, But for the first time in history, it rained on that day. Beginning on February the 17th, 2348 B.C., it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And we read about it in chapter 7 of Genesis and verse 11, where it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, 
the seventeenth day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now you see where I might get February the 17th? If February is the second month here in the scriptures. Now I'm not so positive on that. I won't be dogmatic on that if somebody wants to prove otherwise. But uh, in our way of thinking, the second month, the 17th day, February the 17th, God judged the world and his wrath was poured out on mankind and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and that uh, rain that comes and reminds us of the sight of God that you don't really uh, uh, about anymore. Uh, we Our generation only wants to talk about uh, we only want to think of him as a God of love. We only want to think of him as a God name, uh, as such and uh, of love and forgiveness and will bless his name. Uh, but at the same time, we need to realize that he is a God of wrath, judgment, and vindication. Who uh, found out nine out of ten adults say that they believe God exists. And yet when it comes to defining what God means to people, nearly three out of ten describe his deity other than what, how God is portrayed in the Bible. The God that is portrayed in the Bible is a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of patience. But he's also portrayed as a God of wrath and of judgment and of anger. In Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God, and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide in His indignation. We also read in the little Nahum 1, verse 2, God is a gentle God, and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. And the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Now we come to Genesis chapter 7, and the story of the flood reveals the side of this side of the nature of God. And I want you to notice, first of all, something about God and something we probably already realize, but the patience of God was exhausted. The patience of God was exhausted. Back in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, it says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Again, in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Over in the Psalms, we read in Psalm 86 and verse 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. And so when the Bible speaks of God being long-suffering, it means He is forbearing, He is patient, He is of slow anger. When you consider God's patience, I want you to see, first of all, that God's patience is long God's patience is long. You know, there's no story in the Bible that better reveals the patience and the long-suffering of God uh, than the story we have before us here in Genesis chapter 7. And I'm amazed how much uh, the long-suffering of God is revealed here in this story. Now, in our previous study, 
we have uh, already noticed a man by the name of Methuselah. He lived 969 years, longer than any man has ever lived. And we saw the reason that he lived longer than any man was because it was at his death that the rain began to fall. In Methuselah, we see 969 years of God's long-suffering. We read over in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of of righteousness, which is by faith, God warned Noah that his judgment was coming. We also see in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now we see there that Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. God had warned Noah, and Noah warned others. And for 120 years, Noah warned men of the coming judgment. The long life, that is 969 years of Methuselah, reveals the long-suffering of God. The 120 years of Noah's preaching reveals the long-suffering of God. God warned men for 969 years that He was going to judge the earth. And the last 120 years, God was intensely warning men of His judgment. Again, we read in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. You see, Peter says that God waited. Why? Well, in 2 Peter, we find in chapter 3 and verse 9, it says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that's another example of the long-suffering of God in this story. If you look here in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 4, you notice it says here, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy off the face of the earth. Even after 969 years of Methuselah's living uh, and the 120 years of Noah's preaching, God still waited another full week before He pulled out his, uh, poured out His wrath upon the earth. Now I'm glad that God is not as impatient as I am. You know, I heard about the fellow that prided himself of being punctual. Uh, he followed a very precise routine every morning. His alarm went off at 6.30 a.m. He rose briskly, shaved, showered, ate his breakfast, brushed his teeth, picked up his briefcase, got into his car, and he drove to a nearby ferry landing. He parked his car, rode on that ferry across uh, to the downtown business area, got off the ferry, walked uh, smartly to his building, marched to the elevator, rode to the 17th floor, 
hung up his coat, opened his briefcase, spread his papers out on the desk, and sat down in his chair at precisely 8 o'clock a.m. Not 8.01, not 7.59, but always 8 o'clock a.m. And he followed this routine without variation for eight years until one morning his alarm did not go off. And he overslept for 15 minutes. And when he did awake, he was panic-stricken. He rushed through his shower. He nicked himself shaving. He gulped down his breakfast. He halfway brushed his teeth. He grabbed his briefcase. He jumped into his car, sped to the ferry landing, jumped out of his car, and looked for the ferry. There it was, out in the water a few feet from the dock. He said to himself, I think I can make it. So he ran down the dock towards the ferry at full speed. Reaching the edge of the pier, he gave an enormous leap over the water and miraculously he landed with a loud thud at the deck of the ferry. The captain rushed down to see if he was all right. And the captain said, you know, man, that was a tremendous leap. But if you would have just waited just another minute, we would have reached the dock and you could have walked on. You know, many times we're really not patient, are we? Many times we're very impatient. But blessed be the name of God that is patient and long-suffering. I'm so glad He is patient with me. I'm so glad He's patient. I'm glad that's one of His great characteristics. God's patience is long. Now secondly, we see here that God's patience is limited. God's patience is limited. Again, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, we read there and it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. God is long-suffering and he's extremely patient, but there is a limit to his patience and his long-suffering. There's a time when God will say, no more. That's it. That's enough. There's a time when God says, I can't wait any longer. I will be patient no longer. God will uh, strive with man, or it says he, he will not strive with man. And that word strive means contend, to plead with. God will do all he can to spare men from his wrath, but there's a point when his spirit will strive no longer. And the account of the flood is a great example of how God's patience is being exhausted. God's patience is long, but God's patience is limited. Now secondly, not only is the patience of God exhausted here, but notice the wrath of God was exhibited. The wrath of God was exhibited. Go to chapter 7 again and let's look at verse 10. At verse 10 it says, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Verse 11, I think is that verse that tells us about February the 17th, 2348 B.C., It began to rain. 
God would be patient and He would be long-suffering no longer. Judgment came in the form of a flood. Now I want you to notice here, first of all, the opening of the windows of heaven. The opening of the windows of heaven. Verse 11 tells us here, the windows of the, hev- of the heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth forty days and nights. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we learned how God divided the waters. There was water on the earth and there was water in the heaven. And it's commonly believed there was a canopy of water. Uh, some, believe, some believe it's an ice canopy, but there was a canopy of water over the earth. But you look at verse 6 of chapter 2, and it says there, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now this huge canopy of water suddenly collapsed and it came rushing to the earth. And one can only imagine the devastation and even the destruction that this would have caused. Add to that 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Again in Genesis chapter 7, we go down to verse 17. And it says, And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. The water rose higher and higher until the highest mountain peak was 22 feet underwater. If you had been in space looking at earth, you would have seen just one huge ball of water. So we see here that the wrath of God is exhibited, first of all, by the opening of the windows of heaven. Secondly, the occurring of the wrath of heaven. The occurring of the wrath of heaven. Let's go on in verse 21. It says in verse 21, Uh, And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of the fowl and of the cattle and of the beasts and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in those whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died, and every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. I don't believe I read read verse 20, but that's where we find out the 22 feet of water, the 15 cubits upon which the water prevailed. And then we find the destruction that took place in verses 21 through 24. This is the occurring of the wrath of heaven. We also read in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 that God spared not the old world. All living things on the face of the earth were destroyed. And the flood reminds us of the severity of God's wrath. Let me refer you back again to Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. In verse 2 it says, God is a jealous God. We read that moments ago. And the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. But it goes on to say the the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. He drieth up all the rivers. 
Bashan languisheth in Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And then it says, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knoweth them that trust in Him. But with the overrunning flood, He will make an utter end of the place thereof. And the darkness shall pursue His enemies. You know, the prophet Nahum declared the severity of God's judgment in these words. He said, who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? Someone has written, Yet if we would know God, it is vital that we face the truth concerning His wrath, however unfashionable it may be, and however strong our initial prejudices against it. You know, many people don't like to think about the wrath of God today. They like to say, Oh, God's a God of love. God's a God of forgiveness. God's a good God. And that's certainly true. We also have to realize the Bible tells us about His wrath. And it's very, very important that we face this truth concerning God's wrath. For one day, every person that dies, lost, without God, will face God's wrath. Every person that rebels against God and ignores His warnings will experience God's wrath. And one day, this world will experience God's wrath. I can only imagine the action and the reaction of men and women in Noah's day. I can uh, just imagine uh, to see those who survived the initial rush of water and the heavens pounding on the side of the ark. I can see them in my mind's eye rushing to the mountains trying to get above the rising water. Sometimes artists have tried to picture this. And you see people on top of the mountain screaming and asking for God's mercy at that point. I can see them go under one by one because they didn't listen to the preacher of righteousness. They didn't listen to God's uh, uh, man who was, was there to tell them about the judgment of God. You know, we read about a future day when men were going to, are trying, going to try to flee the wrath of God. We read about it in Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. It says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and the every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? There will be a day when it's going to be too late. The Bible makes it very clear that one day there will be a reward for the righteous and there's going to be retribution for the wicked. And so we've seen here tonight the patience of God was exhausted. We saw here the wrath of God was exhibited. Notice thirdly, the grace of God was experienced. The grace of God was experienced. Now we read here that all flesh died upon the earth, and yet there was an exception. 
We read in chapter 6 and verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a wonderful verse right there. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was one thing that saved Noah and his family from the wrath of God, and that was the grace of life of, of God experienced in his life. I want you to see here that Noah experienced the saving grace of God. Here in chapter 7, and back in verse 1, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteousness before me in this generation. God saw that Noah was righteous. He was a man right with God and right before God. Now why was he righteous? He had experienced the saving grace of God in his life. You go back to chapter 6 and verse 9, and it says that there that he was a just man. He was a just man. And uh, he was right before God. He had experienced the saving grace of God in his life. He was perfect in his generations. He walked with God. He was not saved because he was just, just, but he was just because he was saved. He was not saved because he was perfect in his generations. He was perfect in his generation because he was saved. He was not saved because he walked with God. He walked with God because he was saved. I hope you see the difference tonight. The Bible says, of course, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, by, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Noah was not saved because he was perfect, because he was just, or because he walked with God, but he became those things because he was saved. He found grace in the eyes of God. Have you found that grace? Now notice also, he had not only experienced the saving grace of God, but experienced the sheltering grace of God. We go down to verse 23 of chapter 7. It says, And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. I want you to notice very carefully that Noah and his family remained alive. The grace of God provided a shelter from God's wrath. They were spared the wrath of God. They were sheltered from the wrath of God. Again, we refer to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 where it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. God saved Noah from the flood. Now there's only one reason why God saved Noah. He found grace in the eyes of God. Many years ago, back during the days of the pioneers, there was a wagon train that was crossing the Midwestern prairie. And the wagon master noticed a huge cloud of smoke uh, several miles in front of them, and he knew that it was a prairie fire and that the wind was blowing it straight toward them. It would be only a matter of minutes. He knew that they could not outrun it. And so he rode to the back of the wagon train and he set the fire, a set fire to the grass. And when the grass behind them had burned a large second, section, he shouted, back your wagons up, back your wagons up. 
And all the wagons backed up on the grass that already burned, and the wise wagon master knew the fire could not burn where the fire had already burned. You know, Jesus experienced the wrath of God when He was on the cross. The fires of God's judgment burned at Calvary's cross, and those who have come to Jesus have come to a place where judgment has already fallen. And one day the wrath of God will come to every nation, to every person, and the only escape is Jesus, our ark of safety. I'm so thankful tonight for the grace of God that's been bestowed upon us, has given, been given to us that we might not have to burn because we've gotten into that place that's already been burned. We've come into that placement where judgment has already been taken care of. If you know Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior tonight, uh, you can rejoice in that, the wonderful grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what we look at here in Genesis chapter 7, and the patience of God and, and uh, how it was exhausted. But we're thankful that you're long-suffering. Uh, we know that the uh, wrath of God was exhibited. It was uh, the windows of heaven that were opened. Uh, the wrath of heaven uh, poured forth. But Lord, we're thankful tonight for the grace of God that can be experienced. And I trust that everyone here tonight can say without any doubt in their minds, I know the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior. I've experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that you not only provide for us grace to be saved, but you also provide grace to be sheltered in this life. And so as we go into this week, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to uh, take hold of that great truth, that we are saved by grace, but we are also sheltered by your grace. And we thank you, Lord, for that. Pray your blessing upon each uh, uh, one here tonight and each uh, member of our church. We know some could not be here because of sickness or other responsibilities. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would uh, uh, just strengthen us by your might in the inner man. And we pray, Lord, that we will walk with you, uh, we'll be perfect, uh, and we'll be just, not because, and that does not save us, but we are, that will be because we are saved. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon this lesson to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.